0: One, two, three, testing, one, two, three, this is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, The Antipathetic, Polygamist. Today's date is Friday, May 8th, 2020, we are now at the end of my seventh, yes, my seventh week of putting up a new podcast every weekday to hopefully help those of you who are sheltering at home during the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, a pandemic which I hope we are closer to the end of now than we are to the beginning. I want to give a big thank you to all the listeners to this program and a special thank you to those of you who have seen fit to make donations to Radio Free Mormon so that Radio Free Mormon can continue to broadcast behind enemy lines. A little note about the title to tonight's podcast, The Antipathetic, Polygamous. I expect all of you know what a polygamist is, but antipathetic takes a little bit more in the way of definition. At least it did for me because I didn't even know this word before I started this podcast, but I was winnowing through my thesaurus trying to come up with words that were synonyms for reluctant. And lo and behold, I came up with antipathetic. And antipathetic sounded so much better in front of polygamous that I decided to go with antipathetic, polygamist. Antipathetic is of course the adjective form of antipathy and antipathetic means showing or feeling a strong aversion. So what I mean by the antipathetic polygamist is a person who has a strong feeling of aversion toward polygamy but yet who ends up practicing polygamy anyway. And this is not just a hypothetical person, this is in fact a friend of mine and one that I have known for 30 years now off and on. So let me introduce to you a friend of mine. She's not here on the program right now. I hope to be able to interview her sometime in the not-too-distant future. We're still trying to work out the scheduling on that. But this friend of mine is named Sue. I have permission to use her first name. I don't have permission to use her last name, at least not at this point. So I'll just use her first name of Sue. Sue has had... remarkable life. And I don't want to tell you all the details about it. I want to save that for her to tell her story in a future interview. Believe me, it's mind-blowing. But let me just give you the broadest outline. Back in 1990, I knew Sue and her husband at the time, whose name is Joe. Once again, no last name. Her name is Sue. His name was Joe. And I knew them as faithful, active, very devout members of the LDS church. They had a number of kids and they were raising them to be good Latter-day Saints. They were a wonderful family and a good example of what an LDS family should be. But over the next few years, things started to change in that regard because Joe, who is her ex-husband now, that was her husband at the time, that is her ex-husband now, Sue has since remarried. And the reason that Joe is her ex-husband is because he started to get very involved in LDS fundamentalist offshoots that practiced polygamy. So over the course of time, Joe began studying this whole idea of polygamy. He ran into some polygamists and he began listening to the siren song of plural marriage. And he started figuring this was something that he wanted to practice. No, something that he needed to practice in order to be a true and faithful Latter-day Saint and one who followed the true teachings of the prophets. The current prophets obviously are out of the way. It's the original prophets who taught about polygamy and about it being essential for exaltation that he was going to follow. Now, Sue was not thrilled about this idea. In fact, she went kicking and screaming into polygamy. She did not divorce Joe at that time because that was in her mind the worst thing that could ever happen to a woman in the LDS church was to be divorced. Therefore, she stuck with him. She took a lot of persuading and a lot even of coercion on Joe's part, but eventually they moved first to Idaho and then subsequently to Mexico and began living the celestial law of polygamy. Finally, after a lot of adventures in Mexico, Sue managed to extricate herself from the situation and return to the United States. Her children were now grown and helped her make her escape. And after she returned to the States, she didn't just leave the church completely. Instead, Sue started going back to the LDS church and becoming once again a faithful Mormon, which in its own right was kind of remarkable to me. You might think that someone who had followed that path And been taken into polygamy and had a very very bad time of it once escaping polygamy might wipe the dust of the lds church off their shoes but no sue came back to church and she was active in church for a number of years she came back to church and she found out that she had an annotation next to her name In the membership records of the church, and that annotation signified that she had been involved in polygamy and therefore a special eye had to be kept on her. She had to go through a special council process and get special permission from the First Presidency in order to be rebaptized into the church. But after that, she was told that that annotation next to her name had been removed. She subsequently found out that it had not been removed, which caused her to be upset mainly because she had gone through the process, been rebaptized into the church, and not only that, she had narked out a lot of other polygamists who were flying under the radar, pretending to be active and faithful members of the LDS church. So she had definitely done her bit for the cause, and then she later found out that she still had an annotation next to her name, and she was upset by this. Sometime after that, she made the critical mistake of reading the essays on the church website, and that blew apart her testimony, of the LDS Church. She had already concluded that polygamy was not of God, and now she concluded from the church's own essays that the LDS Church was not of God. And Sue is currently married to a man who is a faithful member of the LDS Church, which puts her in a delicate position, and a lot of my listeners will understand exactly how delicate that position can be, coming to a point where you lose your testimony of the LDS Church, but you have a spouse who is still all in. And that also has something to do with the difficulty that we're having arranging an interview. But I tell you that much of her story, I give you that thumbnail sketch of her story in order to set the background for something that's happening right now. And what is happening right now is that Sue is engaged in an email conversation with her stake president regarding the LDS church. And she is expressing to him some of her concerns, some of her frustrations, and the stake president is doing his best to respond to her issues. And once again, the reason I told you a little bit about Sue and her history is not only because I find it absolutely fascinating and amazing, but also because it will help give context to the discussion between Sue and her state president. This is not the state president in the state where I live or the state where I work. It is a different state president. I'm not going to mention his name, but I will just refer to him as the state president. And actually, this entire discussion between Sue and her state president arose because of an online survey that was sent out by the stake to the different members on Friday, April 24th, 2020. So this is just in the last two weeks. And Sue responded to the stake president with this comment. Can you please remove us? From your mailing list. Thank you. Sue then follows it up because she didn't want to be removed from the branch mailing list. She lives in an area where there is only a branch of the church. She has many friends who are in the branch. She doesn't want to be removed from the branch mailing list, just from the stake mailing list. And she makes that clear here on April 25th, the day after. Please take me off the stake email list. That didn't mean to remove me from the branch emails. I have friends here I've known since 1976, and a few are still active in the branch. I love the members of the branch. I left the church, not my friends. I still would like to keep in touch with my friends in the branch. Thank you. And later the same day, the stake president responds to her on April 25th. Now, by the way, I want to give credit to the stake president for actively engaging in this conversation with Sue. She has identified herself as a person who has left the church. She's obviously not happy with the church And yet the stake president, who I'm sure is a busy individual, is taking the time to minister to her to try and see if he can resolve her issues. This is what he writes. Sorry for the misunderstanding. I am glad to hear that you have good friends in the branch, and I want to do my best to help maintain those friendships. They are important in our lives. The challenge I have is the emails from the branch and from the stake come from the same database maintained by the church. With that in mind, in the future, I will do my very best to take you off each email sent from the stake so you don't have to see them. I would ask you to be patient with me if I happen to miss taking you off an email in the future, but you shouldn't see all of them like you have lately. I have added the branch president to this email so he can add your email back into the database. Thank you for your patience. Signed, the stake president. Sue responds, he had already added me back in. I'm sorry to be a burden. Seems like the church should have a better workaround. For now, don't worry about it. I will just delete any that I get. Thank you. Signed, Sue. A few minutes later, the state president replies to this. I don't consider you a burden at all. I appreciate you reaching out and making the request. I don't want the church to be a burden in your life. I will still try to remember if I can. I wish you the very best, and if I can do something for you in the future, please let me know. Now, that would normally be the end of the communication, but Sue is going to up the ante now with her next email. Thank you for responding to my email i've had some questions for quite a while about how things were handled when i came back to the church the first time by the way the stake president that she's addressing really doesn't know anything about her history and he will seem a bit confused about putting the pieces together as sue relates them that's again why it is that i gave you the background on sue so you would be better able to understand what she's saying as she's saying it i've had some questions for quite a while about how things were handled when i came back to the church the first time when the former stake president was released I decided not to reach out. I should have reached out to Elder Kenneth Johnson and Elder Holland years ago. Now, those are the Area 70 and, of course, an apostle. I should have reached out to them years ago when I had questions, but my husband encouraged me not to. Someone told me that you were a great person and one that would be able to possibly answer my questions, but I decided to try to let things go. Then, I read the gospel essays on some other things that I had thought were rumors. Things I had put on my great big huge shelf for years. After I read those, in addition to the issues with the way things were handled by the Brethren, that has to do with her rebaptism and the annotation still being on her membership records, by the way. After I read those, that great big huge shelf broke. So, here I am, after 47 years. I'm happy and not angry or bitter. I do feel lied to. (laughs) <laughs> I do feel lied to. However, it would be interesting to see if there are any answers that are better than put it on a shelf, which is what I was told for years. So that's the end of her email. Once again, this is in the evening of April 25th, 2020. Still later that night, the state president responds. Thank you for asking. First, I'm pleased to hear that you're happy and not bitter. We all have to find a place of peace in our lives. I truly believe that place of peace comes to us from our Savior, Jesus Christ, whether you are a member of the Church or not. Peace is in Christ. The Church is here to bring us to Him. Without Him, the Church would offer no peace. Without Him, there can be no true peace. I also know of a surety that the Savior loves you deeply and knows your feelings and concerns. I pray that in my own weak, humble way, I can help you find some answers. I am not a Gospel scholar. But I trust the Spirit can help us both in this process. I do know that it is rarely helpful to put real questions and concerns on the shelf. Well, that's a good acknowledgement. Those concerns can be painful and need to be acknowledged and understood. This is a rare state president, isn't it? I would love to have a conversation about any questions you have if that would help. At least I can offer a listening ear and, to the best of my ability, help you feel God's love for you. Your friend in Christ. The state president. Sue responds, I'm not sure how to ask my questions. Through email? Not possible to meet since we are sheltering in place and probably will be for a long time since we are older and my husband has underlying health conditions. How should I proceed? The state president responds, let's start with email and then if we would like, we could talk over the phone. Thanks. I'm really getting the impression that this is one of the better caliber of state presidents that the church has. Let's see how this plays out. Sue responds, by the way, it's now April 29th. Sue responds, I think email is best for now. First, I have a question for you. Do you know I was excommunicated in 2001? And then she says it might have been 2000. The state president says, no, I was not aware of that. From my perspective, that does not change my desires to answer any of your questions if you are concerned about that. I could contact the church offices to learn the date if that would be helpful to you. And now on April 29th, 2020, Sue really lets it fly. The date isn't really important. I'm sure you could find the information by contacting the SCMC, you see Sue's starting to learn her stuff, the SCMC to get all the information. Anyway, I was excommunicated right along with my now ex-husband for apostasy. At first, it was just because my ex-husband had invited Tom Green, Utah polygamist, to our home, along with two of his wives, to speak about his priesthood, yeah, she puts that in quotation marks, my ex-husband invited some of the members of our ward that were of the same mindset as him. So word got out to our bishop. We were excommunicated. My ex-husband took a second wife a few weeks after the church court of which he did not want us to attend, i.e. Joe, her first husband, did not want to attend the church court and did not want his wife, Sue, at the time to attend the church court either. So they were excommunicated in absentia. Sue goes on, So I put up with polygamy for two and a half years, delivered the second wife's first baby, and a couple of other wives came into our family during those years. I never wanted to live polygamy. I fought with my first husband about it for almost a year. We had been married almost 28 years. We had been high school sweethearts. He finally said he was going to do it with or without me. So, not wanting to ever be divorced, I went along with it. I left in November of 2003. And I think there she's referring to her escape from the polygamous compound in Mexico. I left in November of 2003, divorced in 2004. I started the process of being rebaptized in 2004. I did a lot of whistleblowing on men in the ward we had lived in. In fact, one of them had approached my ex-husband and I and said his wife had a dream that our 15-year-old daughter was supposed to be their second wife. He was active, temple recommend holder, had callings in the church. So once again, this is all happening within the context of the LDS church that there are polygamists who fly under the radar pretending to be active members of the church primarily for purposes of recruitment. And apparently, this is how Joe himself ended up being recruited in the first place. So Sue starts blowing the whistle on the men in the ward that they had lived in, who were polygamists flying under the radar, and one of them had approached Joe, her first husband, and Sue, and told them that his wife, the polygamous wife, had a dream. That our 15-year-old daughter, Sue's 15-year-old daughter, whom I know by the way, was supposed to be his second wife. But I guess they frame it in terms that are a little bit less unconscionable. And they say to be their second wife. So my wife had a dream. Your daughter's supposed to be our second wife. Well, that makes it sound okay, doesn't it? Sue goes on. I had to talk to a few stake presidents during the process of getting rebaptized. A few bishops, and finally had to speak with Elder Holland. See, so you got to go all the way to the top here to get rebaptized after you've been involved in polygamy, even unwillingly, like Sue. I was rebaptized in 2006. My temple blessings were restored in 2010 by Kenneth Johnson, a 70, who told me that it would be as if nothing had happened. My baptismal date would be the original of October 6, 1973, and my endowment date would be January of 1975. I had to endure waiting for rebaptism, for the church to talk to my ex husband, an excommunicated polygamist, and again when I was sealed to my now husband in 2011. I had to wait for them to speak with my ex husband. Because even though Joe, her ex-husband, is a polygamist, the church has to speak with him and get apparently his okay for her to be rebaptized, and then has to speak to him again and apparently get his okay to cancel that sealing so she can be sealed to a new guy who is not a polygamist in the temple. This is why Sue says, I had to endure this. It was none of his business, she writes. When I left him, I had to leave with a suitcase of clothes. We had been married for 30 years. I had worked very hard for everything we had. We hid everything. I told Elder Holland of this. I told him that I had changed my name back to my maiden name during the divorce to further distance myself from him. However, I had to endure years of being asked when the last time was that I had contact with him. Apparently, that was asked repeatedly by church leaders. When was the last time you had contact with Joe, your ex-husband? So when I was sealed to my husband, her new husband, in 2011, I moved to his ward in Las Vegas. His bishop, who is also his friend, asked me if I knew that I had an annotation on my record that bishops could see and call Salt Lake City to ask all the details. So she moves to Las Vegas now. She's been sealed to her new husband. They're attending a ward. They have a bishop who's also a friend, and the bishop comes to sue. And after everything she's been through, with escaping from polygamy, with being rebaptized, with being sealed to her husband, with everything that the 70 Kenneth Johnson told her about, everything would be as it was before. Your baptism Your baptism date will be the original date of 73. Your endowment date will be the original date of 1975. She finds out now that there is still an annotation next to her name in the church records. And Sue finds this out from the bishop in their ward in Las Vegas. And that when a bishop sees the annotation, they can then call Salt Lake City to ask for all the details. So all the details regarding Sue are kept in a file in Salt Lake City that a bishop can call and find out. Sue goes on, that was very disconcerting to me, given the time I spent to repent, write letters, she had to write letters to the leaders of the church, etc., etc. Every single thing I went through during the repentance process I thought was testing me, especially my meeting with Elder Holland, which was interesting. He was cold, harsh, non-compassionate. Well, that's Sue's impression of her meeting with Elder Holland. A test for me, right? Same thing with bishops and stake presidents. Not all, but a couple. It's a test. Stay positive. Hang on to your testimony. That was my belief. That was what kept me going. So we moved back to Washington in 2013. The bishop told me the annotation could be removed. He didn't do anything, and I had no idea how to go about it. When that bishop was released and another bishop was called in 2015, the very next day the new bishop called and told me that the annotation should not be there and he was going to ask the stake president to start the process to have it removed. I was finally informed a couple of months later that the request would have to go through church legal affairs and would take 18 to 24 months. It was like I had been hit in the stomach for both myself and my new husband. I mean, I had been lied to by Kenneth Johnson. That was a Seventy who had told her some years before that everything was taken care of, everything would be as it was before. And now I find out that there is this SCMC. Hmm, I wonder where Sue found out about that from. Well, anyway, she found out that there is this SCMC. Interesting, she says. The annotation was finally removed in about 2017, about two years after the initial request was started. So all of that stuff was on a huge shelf of mine, along with all the other things I didn't understand and rumors I had heard about the first vision, Joseph Smith, and polygamy slash polyandry, etc., etc., etc. I have read the gospel essays, Uh uh-oh, I have read the gospel essays and they have shown the church to admit what I thought were rumors to be true, not rumors. I've listened to interviews where I have heard lies in answering difficult questions that don't make the church look good. I have heard polygamists lie all the time to protect their beliefs. That's a lot for you to digest, she says in this rather long email to the stake president. That's a lot for you to digest. I will let you mull that over for a bit. I would be glad to answer any questions you have and would like to hear your opinion on what I have experienced. So that long email was sent on April 29th. Later that same day, the stake president gets back to her. Once again, I got to give the stake president props. He's in there. He's fighting. He's doing his best. He is actually being responsive to Susan's emails. And the stake president writes back to her, Thank you for sharing this information with me. I would guess that bringing it up with me could bring with it some level of pain after all that you have gone through over the years. I can say my heart truly aches for you and what you have gone through. I have learned that the majority of people who have or are experiencing challenges in their faith and with the church are faithful, caring people who love the Savior. Well, that's a nice admission on his part. They're doing their best to be in tune with the Spirit, trying to live Christ-like lives and obeying commandments. So apparently the state president acknowledges that people can be doing all the right things from a Mormon point of view and yet have challenges with the church. He doesn't say those challenges are legitimate yet, but I think he may get around to indicating that. Just as you said, Sue, just as you said you were fulfilling your calling, paying tithes and offerings, and were never lukewarm. I don't pretend to have all the answers, as to why you were treated the way you were or even why church policy in some of these situations is the way that it is. Okay, so let me just make a comment here. It's very important that the state president acknowledges that he doesn't pretend to have all the answers about why she was treated the way she was and why church policy is the way it is. That's very important. On the one hand, it's acknowledging the fact that he doesn't know the answers, but on the other hand, it doesn't really do anything to resolve the concerns that Sue has with the way she has been treated and with the way the church policies actually are. But as I say, I think it's probably the best the state president can do under the circumstances. What I do know is that I am trying my best to be a humble servant of Jesus Christ and to bring people unto him so they can feel his magnificent grace and healing. I believe that path is very different for each person, and it might or might not include the church in this life. Now if he hadn't put that part of in this life at the end I think it would have been a more powerful sentence and one that I might have tended to agree with more. But he does say he believes the path is very different for each person and it might or might not include the church, at least not in this life. The purpose of the church is to bring all souls to Christ and if it was not doing that for you at this time the Lord doesn't want it to stand in the way of you coming to know him and becoming like him. Don't get me wrong, because he could be misinterpreted here. He's kind of going out on a limb. As far as this coming from a stake president, don't get me wrong, I love the church and what it does for me and so many other people, but I also realize that it is in no way perfect and its leaders over the years are not perfect, including Joseph Smith or any prophet since him. I know for sure I'm not anywhere near perfect. The only true perfect person on earth has been the Savior. I fully trust Him and His ability to redeem us, lift us, and edify us. I'm so grateful that He has experienced our sorrows and afflictions, and He can therefore heal us as individuals. I'm not sure if He's actually saying that Jesus has experienced the sorrows and afflictions of being a polygamous wife in Mexico, but it sounds that way. He says, I need that healing on a daily basis. So, he concludes, I would like to do as you suggested, mull over this a bit, pray, and seek guidance on what I can do to help you and me learn from this process and discussion. My goal is to help you find some peace, if that is what you seek, and to help us both become more caring and understanding, like the Savior. I hope I can help you find some answers to your questions. I am grateful for the chance to have conversations with you, and I thank you again for your willingness to open up and share. Sincerely, the State President. Now, here is Sue's response from April 30th of 2020. No, it doesn't bring up pain. That pain has been there since I left and the church exacerbated it by how they handled the entire repentance process and even after. Have you heard of the SCMC? Do you know what it is? I am sure that I have a file there, which I feel is a violation of my privacy, as well as disrespecting of what I went through when I didn't even believe polygamy or want to live it. I didn't go into detail about what went along with all of that. We had plenty of money, yet my ex-husband felt like we needed to get out of Babylon. We moved to Mexico, into the mountains of Chihuahua. We lived without running hot water, no indoor plumbing, limited electricity. My living quarters was a gutted travel trailer with just a bed and a table in it. No heat. It snowed in the winter there. I had to keep a fire going under a 90-gallon water tank 24-7 to have hot water. I had to sleep with two hot water bottles for warmth. It was work just to live day to day. We had 200 apple trees that had to be watered. Getting water was a chore. The little village where we lived was fed by a spring. The water pipe ran from the unprotected spring through our property to the town. We drilled a hole in the side of that pipe, used it to fill a 500-gallon water tank buried in the ground, then had to use a pump to pump the water up the hill to fill another 500-gallon water tank. That tank gravity flowed to our house into a hose through a window, so we had running water, cold water, dirty water. I wrote a letter to the First Presidency that was many pages long explaining everything, telling them I cried every day because I felt that what we were doing was wrong. I was told daily by my ex-husband to fast and pray because I was letting Satan influence me. So I did, to the point that I was very thin. When I finally got away and my daughter eventually was able to buy a plane ticket for me from El Paso to Salt Lake City, when I got off the plane, my daughter thought I was anorexic. That is the short story. So many horrible things happened, lots of scary things down there in Mexico, and then after all I had been through, I was treated as though I could possibly still want to live that? Given an annotation to be watched, seriously? and then to find out that the church admits to things that were rumors, i.e. translation of the Book of Mormon, polygamy, polyandry, first vision, etc. 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 I wanted the church to be true so badly. This is really important. I wanted the church to be true so badly. I wanted Joseph Smith to be true so badly. I wasn't raised in the church. I wasn't raised in any church. My parents took me to the first Christian church until I was five or six Then they got divorced. Didn't go to church again until my mom took me to the Unitarian Church when I was about nine or ten. She took me two or three times. That was it. I didn't believe in God. I sent the missionaries away when they knocked on my door several times. Then I started dating my first husband. There's Joe. He was a Mormon and listened eventually joining the church when I was 18. My first husband wasn't involved in that, apparently in the missionary discussions or her conversion process. My first husband was not involved in that because he wanted to be sure I was joining because I had a testimony of the truthfulness of the church. He didn't want me to leave the church if we broke up. God, Jesus Christ, the church, were an entire package for me. I gained a testimony of what I was taught, but it wasn't the truth. Lots of hidden stuff. And the Urim and Thummim? Wasn't used to translate the Book of Mormon, but that's what I was taught. So there is a little more to add to the information. Everything just finally came to a head, and I was thinking about quitting going to church several years ago. Then, I was given the calling to teach early morning seminary. That took a while to accept, but as usual, I did. I continue to always pay tithing and my fast offerings. All that did was push off what has happened now. I look forward to your answers to my concerns and questions. Thank you. I hope you're enjoying this back and forth between my friend Sue and the state president. I think he's starting to realize he's got quite a lot on his hands. But he writes back once again on April 30th. Thanks again for sharing. You have traveled an amazing, long and challenging journey. I can't imagine going through what you have gone through and living in conditions you lived in while in Mexico. The journey you went through while trying to get rebaptized and sealed to your current husband sounds very challenging emotionally as well. To answer your first question, no, I don't know what SCMC stands for or what it is. Now, this is a stake president in the LDS church. I have no reason to think that he's fibbing here. I'm sure he doesn't know what the SCMC is or what it stands for. That's because it's a secret secret. Organization. The state presidents are not supposed to know what the SCMC is or what it stands for and God forbid the average members are not supposed to know. But somehow, Sue managed to find out and it appears that her state president is in the dark on this one. No, I do not know what SCMC stands for or what it is. Based upon the context of your message, I don't know why he doesn't just Google it. I mean, it doesn't seem like he's doing a whole lot of research here. But he says, based upon the context of your message, it sounds like it has something to do with membership records or files, and maybe in particular for those who have been excommunicated at some point for apostasy. Just a guess. Well, that's a pretty good guess based upon the context by the stake president. He says, I hope I can do better with the next question. (laughs) Okay, now on May 1st. We're getting close now. Today's May 8th. This is a week ago. This is Sue. The SCMC, Strengthening Church Members Committee, per Elder Holland's exact words, was principally formed and its principal task was to protect the church against polygamists and guard against polygamy. So how do I find out if I have a file within that committee? And if so, why on earth am I lumped into that? My actions over the years show that I in no way ever wanted to live polygamy and in fact tried to assist by whistleblowing on those wanting to live it in the ward where I lived in Idaho. And I also verbalized all of this to Elder Holland. So since he has lied on different subjects, here she's talking about the BBC interview and probably listening maybe to a certain podcast by Bill Real. So since he, Elder Holland, has lied on different subjects and then had to admit to them when pressed, then it's okay to lie to me? As well as Kenneth Johnson, the 70 that restored my temple blessings in 2010? I mean, it's been my experience that polygamists lie for the Lord. I just had no idea that the apostles in 70s would do so as well. I guess it should be obvious since they lied during the time of polygamy. Sorry to be so blatant, but these are facts that I have had personal experience with, as well as a clip of an interview with Elder Holland by a BBC journalist. It is shocking to me to hear him blatantly lie. Just another punch in the stomach from someone whom I revered and a church that I served for all of my life, with the exception of a few years when my ex-husband's actions, i.e. polygamy, separated me from the church, and I defended the church time and time again, and now I find out that I was defending wrongly. How can you explain the lies? How can you explain the SCMC, of which I probably have a file? I feel like I have been violated, lied to, deceived. It's a tough thing to find out. Interstate president responds on Saturday, May 2nd. I personally have never heard of the SCMC, Strengthened Church Members Committee, in all my time as a church leader. And once again, I have no doubt that he's telling the truth. There, it's a secret committee. Hello, but I am sure there are many committees in the church that I am not aware of, which are trying to do good. I have. <laughs> he actually says to do go. I'm assuming he meant to do good. And to think about the SEMC as doing good just made me laugh. I apologize. I have no idea what type of records on individuals this or any other committee keep, but I can truly see your frustration about having your name associated with this committee after all you have done and had to go through. The only records on individuals that I am aware of are the church membership records and records of what used to be called church disciplinary councils, now called membership councils, for those who were excommunicated or disfellowshipped. Isn't it great that a church disciplinary council is now called a membership council, talk about Orwellian. It's the same council, it does the same thing, but now we're going to call it a membership council instead of a disciplinary council. The membership council records are you, okay, then he goes off on uh, some details that I don't really care about. I want to be fair to him, but I also don't want to go off into all these details. He does write, not being present in the conversations you had with Elder Holland or Elder Kenneth Johnson, I can't defend what they said. So I choose to take your word for what you were told and your feelings of being lied to. That's good of him. That's important. That's a good concession that he makes. But let me see what I can find if I Google the words, Elder Holland lies to the BBC, and see if I can find an audio clip that might help the state president understand what it is that Sue was talking about. Ah, here it is. That wasn't hard to find at all.
1: Let's talk about Mitt Romney. Okay. The man who may well become the most powerful man on earth. Mm -hmm. As a Mormon in the temple, I've been told, he would have sworn an oath to say that he would not pass on what happens in the temple, lest he slit his throat. Is that true? That's not true. That's not true. We do not have penalties in the temple. You used to? We used to. Therefore, he swore an oath saying, I will not tell anyone about the secrets here, lest I slit my throat. Well, the, the, the vow that was made was regarding the ordinance, the ordinance of the temple. It sounds Masonic, sir. It sounds Masonic. Well, it's comparable. Uh, it's similar to, to, to a, a Masonic uh, relationship. The most, potentially, the, day, the most powerful man in the world the has sworn an oath, which he meant at the time, whatever it is now, that he must not tell anyone about what he's seen, lest he uh, satisfied. So that he would not tell anyone about his personal Pledge
0: to the Lord. So hopefully that audio clip will help the state president know what it is that Sue was talking about. Nevertheless, the state president goes on in his email to Sue. What I can do is share with you my personal feelings about church leaders, old and new. Those feelings have changed over the last 10 years. I wonder what's been going on with him over the last 10 years, the state president. And I believe those changes have helped me better understand my savior and his grace and mercy. I was taught growing up that we listen to the prophets and when he declares something, It is the Lord speaking. There is even scripture to support that. What I have learned working with elders, mission presidents, and other leaders is that each is a man who is called to fulfill a role in bringing people into Christ. Being natural men, they bring with them all their faults, weaknesses, and cultural background. Those backgrounds, their strengths and their weaknesses, play into the decisions they make. None of them are perfect and they all make mistakes even when some decisions may affect many people. Wow, that's quite a concession. I know I personally have made many mistakes and I have no doubt that there are individuals who have left the church because of my actions. That haunts me. But I also know I have tried to do my best to do what the Lord wants me to do and I pray and trust that our Savior will have mercy on me for the harm I have caused and will heal those whom I harmed. Looking at church leaders old and new, I turn to the New Testament and see the mistakes Peter made. He had a wonderful heart and loved the Lord and wanted to bring people unto him, yet as an apostle, he made mistakes. The Savior also forgave him of those mistakes, and I'm sure the Savior healed those who might have been injured by his mistakes. So did Elder Johnson lie in the way he said that all would be restored and there would be no record? I can see how you feel he did. But if I was him, what I would have tried to convey to you is what is taught in both the New Testament and the Book of Mormon, that when a person has repented, that the Lord remembers those sins no more, and they are clean and white through the infinite atonement. Your ordinances were fully restored. I truly believe they were, and I know the Lord will honor those covenants. As far as Elder Holland lying to BBC journalists, I have not seen that situation. And apparently he doesn't really want to see it because all he would have to do is Google Elder Holland lying to a BBC journalist, and it would come right up. I guarantee it. The state president says that you, Sue, you said that Elder Holland admitted lying. At least I take some comfort knowing he recognized he had lied, and I hope he repented of that and is constantly trying to do better. My experience with church leaders, even with their faults, is they are truly trying to behave as a Savior would have them. <laughs> I personally try to look at the fruits they bring forth, as we are taught to do in the scriptures, like the fruit of lying, of course. Are those fruits as a whole good in causing me to come into Christ, or are they leading me away from Christ? My personal experience and testimony is that they are leading me toward Christ. I don't always understand some of the decisions and policies made, some of which are later changed. Hmm, I wonder what policy he's talking about there. But my faith remains founded on the doctrine of Christ. My daily effort is to try to follow the promptings of the Holy Ghost as it testifies of Christ and directs me to him. From your words, I can truly feel the significant amount of pain you have gone through during this journey and how devastating this has been. Your world has been rocked and your years of service and dedication feel somewhat in vain. Somewhat might be an understatement in that sense. Probably would have left that out if I was writing it. Okay. I would share that the Savior sees your years of service and dedication while in and out of the church as service to individuals, his children. Any and all efforts will be recognized as service unto him. Once again, the church is here to help bring people to Christ. It is not an eternal organization. The family and individuals are eternal, and what we do to serve them is eternal. The Lord loves you dearly, as do many other people. Your friend in Christ, State President. Oh my gosh, Sue writes back another long one on May 2nd, and boy, it's like the state president is trying to put water on the fire, but it turns out to be gasoline, and it just keeps flaming it up again. Here's what Sue writes. Just to clarify, Elder Holland never admitted his lies. He only changed the answers when he was further questioned about things, i.e. penalties in the temple. I have a lot of questions. Another one is, why did Brigham Young teach the Adam-God Doctrine, and it was taught in the temple? Then in 1976, Spencer W. Kimball said it was false doctrine. Do apostles and prophets make mistakes on doctrine they teach, since they are just men with a calling? Brigham Young on Black's quote, shall I tell you the law of God in regard to the African race? If the white man who belongs to the chosen seed mixes his blood with the seed of Cain, the penalty under the law of God is death on the spot. This will always be so. The nations of the earth have transgressed every law that God has given. They have changed the ordinances and broken every covenant made with the fathers, and they are like a hungry man that dreameth that he eateth and he awaketh, and behold, he is empty. Prophet Brigham Young, that's how she quotes him, Prophet Brigham Young, Journal of Discourses. Sue asks, Are the Journal of Discourses done away with? My ex had me search out and purchase a set, though I never read them. He was mostly interested in what was going on with what was taught on polygamy. These are the founding fathers of Mormonism. These were prophets of God. It's not conceivable that they would teach doctrine through revelation from God if those doctrines are false. Brigham Young also said that the blacks would never hold the priesthood. Well. Technically, he said that they wouldn't hold the priesthood until every white man who would ever be born had the opportunity to do so. But nevertheless, the idea is still the same. I'm really loving the way that Sue is standing up to the state president, even though he's being very nice in his responses, and I have to give him credit for that. Sue goes on, the manifesto was created not from revelation, as was said by Wilford Woodruff, but pressure from the government, as I feel was the revelation on the blacks in 1978. Mind you, I never ever questioned any of it. But in studying things on the church's own website and studying doctrine from what was taught during the beginnings of the church based on revelation, I can't ignore the truths I have learned. I don't search out anti-Mormon sites. Even though I don't think members should be told not to, truth is truth. If something is true, then our leaders shouldn't be afraid for members to investigate and get answers. Bravo. Bravo, Sue. Well put. She goes on, I don't know how old you are, but I am old enough to know what covenants, obligations, etc. I took upon myself in 1975 when I received my own endowments. Pretty shocking. And they match a lot of the masonry stuff. I was told by a mason that the angry mobs that were after Joseph Smith were all masons, too. It would make sense that they would be angry with him. After all, he broke the covenant of silence under penalty of death. And the temple is so far removed today from what it was in 1975, as well as when it was first made up. Revelation? It's almost not recognizable. So now, since there are less shocking things in the temple, now the church can feel safe in saying that the things in the temple are sacred, not secret. Because secrecy was used as a part of the covenant to never reveal signs and tokens. And if they were shared outside the temple, it was under penalty of death. That's some pretty serious and strange stuff right there. What are your answers, state president, and explanations on my concerns and what I've asked? <laughs> oh my gosh, Sue is really, really putting it to the state president. Okay, all we have left now is one response from the stake president to this. This is from May 4th, 2020. So this is just from this past Monday. He writes, Susan, once again, thank you for asking the questions and they are very valid questions. Well, good job on you for validating the questions. I don't know if his answers are going to be that good, though. You have pointed out some things that have changed and there are obviously others like you i have never read the journal of discourses as it is not an official publication of the church wait a second rfm breaking in again i apologize did the state president really just say that the reason he has not read the journal of discourses is because it is not an official publication of the church let's read that last line again shall we like you i have never read the journal of discourses as it is not an official publication of the church Hmm, it sure sounds like that's what he's saying If so, he is definitely signaling that he is a good Latter-day Saint, that he is following the direction of the church leaders to restrict his research, his learning, his understanding about Mormonism exclusively to officially published sources. Just wanted to point that out for the record. The Saint President goes on. The teachings you referred to were never adopted into the church doctrine and never taught by other prophets following Brigham Young. How I personally reconcile what was said by President Young and other earlier prophets and what we hear and are taught by our current prophet is that as individuals we are constantly learning, growing and changing as we become more like Jesus Christ. The Savior allows us to do our best as imperfect mortals. He wants us to learn from those mistakes and gently directs us to truth and his perfection as we continually seek him. Like I said in the last email, the apostles in Christ's day made mistakes as they were learning and becoming like him. It is a necessary process. The Lord has always used weak vessels in order that his children see his glory and not the work of man. I believe the church is also a living, growing organization, just like we are as individuals. With time, policies and procedures change, but the doctrines of Christ Do not change. Now here he's going to draw the circle on doctrine so small that he can actually make this argument with a straight face because he puts in parentheses after doctrine of Christ, what is it he's talking about? Hope, faith, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. That's it. That's the only doctrine of the church which he is going to commit to believing and stating will not change. Everything else apparently is up for grabs. That is why the Savior taught that we should teach faith, repentance, and baptism. I am at peace and to some degree take comfort knowing that our leaders are men called of God, but that they are also human. Okay, so here comes the switcheroo, right? When it's been pointed out that leaders who claim revelation and are prophets of God within the LDS tradition like Brigham Young teach things that are controverted and denied by subsequent prophets, that doesn't make the state president question how both of those men can be prophets when they're teaching completely opposite things in the name of the Lord and in official church publications. By the way, let me back up a second here. Official church publications today include the conference reports that we get twice a year in the Enzyme magazine. Much of what is contained in the Journal of Discourses are conference reports from earlier church conferences held in Salt Lake City. Just wanted to add that for perspective. If the conference reports today are official publications of the church, why are the conference reports as recorded in the Journal of Discourses not official publications of the church? That's the question I wanted to bring up. But going on with the switcheroo, Now that it's been pointed out that prophets of the LDS Church have contradicted each other, that's going to be now framed by the stake president as a mistake. They're not perfect. They're continually learning. And now he's going to not deal with the issue, but instead he's going to do the switcheroo, like I said, and he's going to say he takes comfort from it because he realizes that he's imperfect as well. And if these guys can be called of God to their high and holy callings, then the stake president can feel that he also can be acceptable to God because he's not perfect either. See how it completely dodges the issue and tries to put a positive spin on what is really a very, very difficult and thorny theological issue. He goes on. I am at peace and to some degree take comfort knowing that our leaders are men called of God, but that they also are human. It gives me hope that I too, see here it is, it gives me hope that I too can be called of God for my particular callings and that even though the Savior knows I will not be perfect at it, he will help me, direct me, and change me as I do my best to follow him and hear him. It is my desire that he will be able to use me to help others come unto him, which is really what he's trying to do with Sue. He's trying to help her come unto him, which in LDS parlance actually means come unto the church, come back to church. So have some things changed over time in the church? Yes. Well, at least he's going to recognize that. I've also lived long enough to see some of those changes. It gives me hope in a church that is founded on revelation. See, when your church changes, it's apostasy. When my church changes, it's continuing revelation. I believe the most important prophet to follow is our current prophet. I believe he was prepared to lead us today through the challenges and issues of our day. I personally know and have had it witnessed unto me by the Holy Spirit that Russell M. Nelson is a prophet and is here to guide us today." Now, this is the problem, of course, and it's the problem that the stake president is not going to engage in his letter because he's already set forth the basic building blocks of the difficulty and acknowledge them as being correct. That Brigham Young taught the Adam God theory, that President Kimball said the Adam God theory was false doctrine. So we know, just based upon what the stake president has admitted, that what a past prophet says, even if he claims it as revelation, even if he claims it as doctrine, can be overturned completely and disregarded by subsequent prophets. And once you've admitted that much, you completely knock the knees out of whoever the current prophet happens to be because having admitted that much, you also have to admit the logical next step that whatever the current prophet is saying is doctrine could be overturned by a future prophet, just the same way that what Brigham Young said was doctrine was overturned by Spencer Kimball. What it ends up meaning is that we have good reason to not trust what a current prophet is telling us, because we know that it is purely provisional and temporary and subject to being overturned At a later date. In the case of President Nelson, he overturned himself even within his own lifetime. First he claimed the November 2015 policy was revelation from God and then it was overturned three and a half years later and President Nelson claimed it was overturned by revelation of God. But in spite of that, the stake president writes, I personally know and have had it witnessed unto me by the Holy Spirit that Russell M. Nelson is a prophet and is here to guide us today. But I also know that I must always be living worthy to receive personal revelation for all that is taught. That is a pretty extraordinary truth. So here the stake president falls back on the old trope about the fact that we have the power by personal revelation to confirm that what the current prophet is teaching is actually true. However, having admitted the fact that what current prophets teach is provisional and can't be overturned by subsequent prophets, why is it we should think that the revelation received by prophets of God is going to be any more permanent and any more grounded and any more eternal than the revelations we receive on a personal basis? In other words, should not we expect the revelations we receive to be able to be overturned at a subsequent date just the way the prophet's revelation is? The state president ends his email with a question for Sue. I have a question for you, if you don't mind. What brings the spirit and promised peace of the Savior, Jesus Christ, into your own life? What truths do you cling to for an anchor at this time? Sincerely, the State President. So that's the last email in this exchange that I have received. And I'd like to ask my listeners, if you were Susan, how would you respond to that last email from the state president, and specifically, how would you respond to that last set of questions when he asks her, "What brings the spirit and promised peace of the Savior, Jesus Christ, into your own life? What truths do you cling to for an anchor at this time?" I'm going to resist the temptation of giving my own responses to those questions, and I'm going to leave it to you to give your responses. And if you would put those in the comments section at the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage. I would love to read them and possibly will feature them in a future podcast. Well, that is more than enough for tonight. I think I'll be closing out this podcast with a song by Kiki D, selected especially for my friend Sue, the antipathetic polygamist. Remember, in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, stay away from crowds, maintain good social distancing of at least six feet from the nearest person. If you have to cough, cough into your elbow and not upon your neighbor. And together, we will lick this coronavirus. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon signing off the air.